0: Hey guys, Adam here. This is not an episode of the Startup Diary and there's no Harrison on the mics today. Before you stop listening, this is still going to be an interesting show. This is an episode of Startup Stories. This is where I get to interview interesting people from the world of business and hear about their journeys, their wins, their losses, and what they've learned along the way. If you would like to go and catch up with every episode because season one has already finished, head over to Startup Stories and hit subscribe. Alternatively, we're gonna be dropping every show here every Saturday until the end of season one. There's eight episodes in each season. Enjoy. Ken, firstly, a huge thank you for giving us your time today on the Startup Stories. I guess before we get into it, um, we've heard a little bit about yourself, but could you just, for everyone that doesn't know about you or what you're working on, could you give us a whistle-stop tour of what you've done for sort of the last, your career? Let's go through that and then we're going to find certain areas to zoom into uh, that uh, in our previous conversation we've sort of thought actually that'd be really interesting for the listeners of the show. So who are you and what have you been doing
1: Sure. So uh, my background is a mixture of uh, technology, uh, international development, and anthropology. So I learned to code when I was 13. Uh, got very interested in early computing, pre-Windows days. Uh, found I had a knack for computing. In 1985, I saw Live Aid, the, the, the global concert in aid of the Ethiopian famine that took me into a an area of being interested in global development and international development. Uh, I eventually went to university to study it in the mid-90s and then tried to find a way of fusing all those things together. I studied anthropology at university because I felt that people were at the heart of everything I wanted to do. And in many cases, I think with tech projects, we tend to forget that actually it's people that are going to be using the things that we build. So that's been an incredibly useful skill. Uh, After graduating, I did a few bits and pieces, ran a primate sanctuary in Nigeria, traveled around Africa, did biodiversity survey work, did technology research work, helped build schools and hospitals, really just to try to get a flavor and understanding of what life is like in the places I was hoping to be able to be helpful. Um, I then created some software called Frontline SMS, which I guess we can dive into at some point, which is a text messaging platform that allows you to blast and receive Uh, SMS through a laptop and an attached mobile phone from anywhere there's a mobile phone signal. And I developed that in 2005 and then released that and it became um, quite successful over a period of about eight years. Uh, After that, I stepped back a little bit, uh, did some consulting work, wrote a couple of books. And since then, I've returned to the private sector to try to use all of that to try and help a company called Yoti, who provided a digital identity platform. Uh, to try and help them develop and support humanitarian efforts around digital identity and around helping people prove who they are when they need to access essential services.
0: So I need to, I need, I need to breathe for you at this point. (laughs) (laughs) There's a, there's a world of stuff from speaking to Jeremy ahead of our call and having a quick 10 minute chat with you before we, before we hit record on the mics uh, that I thought we could zoom into and, and really try and, uh, for the people listening, drive some value for. And I guess the first thing that I want to really get into is Frontline SMS. So that was founded back in 2005 uh, by yourself, from what I understand, the sole founder uh, you back then. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. It was just a, a crazy idea in a bedroom at the beginning. It was just me early 2005. Yeah. Uh, So just
0: give us an idea of what those first couple of years looked like, because to go from a a bedroom to 190 countries uh, is pretty impressive stuff. Uh, So take us back to the first couple of years. uh, What happened? What were the initial hurdles? uh, And I guess to start us off, why did you build the product in the first place?
1: Sure. So uh, in... 2003, I found myself um, working on some conservation projects that were looking at technology and mobile technology in particular for use in conservation in the field. So it's mostly on the African continent that the project was focused. And mobile phones were starting to appear within the communities where the, these projects were running, and local organisations were starting to wonder whether they could make use of these phones in their projects. Text messaging was becoming, starting to become, a thing back then there was a very strong interest among non-profits in how they might use text messaging to spread information and collect information and systems were starting to appear which allowed you to send messages out to large numbers of people and receive replies. But the thing I found was because I'd done most of my work at, at grassroots level with much smaller organizations, most of the systems that were coming out 2003, 2004, 2005 were aimed at large international NGOs that had money, technical expertise and resources to run large systems, and no one was building anything that was small, adaptable, appropriate, used very simple technology, and could be taken by literally anybody uh, who could then set up a two-way text messaging system in, in no time at all. So the, the, the genesis of the idea was that if we build something that's very simple and can be taken by anybody, can we democratize, if you'd like to use that word, democratize the use of SMS among uh, social change agents in developing countries. And as it turned out, you could, I guess for my, for, for my simple brain, can you just
0: give me a use case of how people were using this product? Like, um, out in the field in terms of, uh, this, the, the small user that you're building this for to make it accessible, like
1: how are they using it? Like physically day to day? What's the purpose Yep. So I guess one great example, the first user was actually in Zimbabwe within a couple of weeks of of launching it. So what they were doing is they were trying to get news and information out to communities that were actually starved of the real news and information because the government had a stranglehold on the media. So using their networks, they were able to text news updates to people directly on their phones to enable them to get an update on what the government was doing and things where the government was corrupt and areas where they might want to engage or simply to ask them what's happening where they are so they can text back and it can sort of complete the picture so as a kind of a news dissemination tool it was quite popular at the beginning it was also used to send market prices to farmers so that farmers selling their crops to middlemen would have a better idea of what the going rates were for their crops when they negotiated prices. Conservation organisations were using it to allow people to text in when they saw illegal logging or poaching. Um, So there was a range of uses like that, but it was all around 160 characters and enabling small amounts of information to be shared out with people or to allow people to text back in smaller amounts of information that could be used for other things.
0: Makes sense. And and for me, uh, being probably uh, seven, eight years into technology as a business, uh, I guess it's just, uh, it's quite surprising and shocking to hear that not too many years ago, that that was a product that that didn't exist in, in these countries, to be honest. Um, and obviously much needed, I guess, especially when government is controlling the information that's distributed. I can imagine it being extremely powerful.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. And surprisingly for me, you know, the, the sort of roots of the idea were a conservation project in South Africa, but almost, I'd say for the first couple of years, it got picked up by the activist community. It was being used by people in countries where there was there was suppression of free speech and, and the governments were, you know, locking up bloggers and it was it was very controlling, very dictatorial environment. So I found myself immersed in the a, a world of activism, without really planning it because it just happened to be a very useful tool in those areas. And for me, actually, it was very interesting because when you provide a tool and you step back, you find it gets used for things you never expected. So rather than trying to dictate its use, if you throw it out there and trust people, you actually find that that it's, 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 it's adapted and used in many different ways that you may never have expected.
0: That's a really interesting point, actually. When you built the product, um, you obviously had your own idea of who would use it. Uh, give me an idea of how quickly this thing grew from, uh, from the idea in a bedroom through to, uh, again, 190 countries. What was the, the rate of growth? And I guess, how, how did you then scale that business up?
1: Yeah, well, the rate was very slow at the beginning. So, uh, January two thousand and five, watching um, watching a, a soccer match on telly, drinking beer, was the was the point the idea came. That summer, I wrote it, and in October two thousand and five, I I released it. The first two years, it's very simple to answer what happened in the first two years. It was literally nothing. I had a day job, and I was just, you know, updating the software at weekends and responding to inquiries and just trying to push news out that it existed during that time. So, you know, this was a hobby at the beginning. I never, I didn't sell up and and throw everything at this because I didn't know if it was going to be genuinely useful at the scale that I hoped. It wasn't until April two thousand and seven, which is about two years in, that it was used to monitor the Nigerian presidential elections. A, A local group of Nigerian NGOs decided to. Use it to ask people to text in their observations of the election that year, and the BBC got hold of the story because uh, it was the first time it's believed that a, an African NGO has monitored their own elections with mobile technology, and it became a very big story. And that was the launch point. After two years of probably eighty downloads, maybe a couple of dozen uses, really not setting the world on fire, there was this sudden explosion in interest. In oh my goodness, there's this platform out there that's enabled a small group of Nigerian NGOs to do something as significant as monitor their elections. How is this possible? What did this tool do to allow that? Can we support it more? And I started getting offers for money from donors. And, and at that point, it started to grow. And, and what's the emotional uh, what's the emotional journey that you go on at that point?
0: Something that is a an evening, a weekend hobby, and you've got a day job. Do you then transition out of the day job and
1: make this full time? What does that look like? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, obviously, See, so getting news of the Nigerian use was, was, you know, first of all, I, I didn't believe it was going to happen um, because it just seemed too crazy, but it did. Uh, and, um, you know, to suddenly have people showing an interest and offering money and then thinking to myself, okay, you know, maybe now I should dedicate more of my time to this because now I know it's genuinely got a use and there is a lot of interest out there which has suddenly bloomed. Um, I mean, transitioning was relatively easy. Um, the MacArthur Foundation were the first to call me up and I got a $200,000 grant from them Within three months to do a rewrite and to rebuild a website and so on, um, so it was very sort of quick. At that point, I was doing consulting. I didn't really have any kind of fairly lengthy contracts in my work, so I was sort of doing bits and pieces. So it was easy to quit, and then just to focus all my time um, on frontline SMS. But I was actually at Stanford University at that particular moment in time on a fellowship, so you know it was the, the transition was relatively easy. But um, you know growing it I, I tried to stay small um, even when the money came initially I, I contracted out the software development I didn't didn't hire a developer directly. The website development was hired out as well. I, I tried to keep this small and nimble um, and lean. I didn't really have any intention of growing an organization around it. My instinct is never to do that. My instinct is always to think how small can you, can you remain whilst you increase your impact? So your impact grows, not your organization. Uh, and that was something that stuck with me. But eventually, as we got more and more funding, uh, and as the project grew and we started to expand into more and more countries, we found people building medical tools on top of it, and microfinance tools and radio tools and all sorts of things started to happen. It became clear that on my own, I really couldn't handle this. And then we started to get funding to start building out the team and to open an office and and so on.
0: I'm really interested about that phrase in terms of impact grows, but not the organisation. Where do you get that sort of line of thinking from? Is that just something that uh, is your fundamental belief in business, um, or sort of I don't use the word business there in terms of just uh, general the things that you create? Why do you choose to use that phrase?
1: I think it was a reflection of what I've seen out in the international development sector when I was sort of traveling around around parts of Africa and, and helping and working and trying to understand nonprofit work. I just found that the smaller organizations seemed to be doing the most interesting and the best work. They weren't bogged down with, with policy and procedure. Um, they could make very quick decisions and do things very quickly. And also the, the passion remained. So I think my my instinct was just to, um, to try to follow that model, a model that I'd seen work very well. But I'd also come across a book around that time called Starfish and the Spider, which is all about organizational growth without there being a center, a centre for that organisation so nobody's really in control it's just a thing that's sort of happening so a combination of personal experience and some thinking around that starfish and a spider model and it's a very good book I recommend it to anyone listening to the podcast Um, I think encouraged me to try to stay as small as possible as we try to scale our impact
0: yeah I just made a note of it I'm I'm gonna have a listen um uh I guess the thing is uh, for me now is I could spend all this this time we've got together just talking about from an SMS, but I want to fast forward to 2013, uh, which is where you decide to step back, step away from the business um, and really get an understanding of what's going through your head at that point. You've built this thing that's having a a very large impact. Uh, What goes through your emotions at that point in time to lead you to the decision to step away from the business?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting time. Um, I think, to be honest with you, it was just me stepping back and being brutally honest about what I was enjoying, what I was good at, and why I started the thing in the first place. So if I thought, you know, I'm, I'm interested in solving problems that grassroots nonprofits face in their work and how technology might be able to solve some of those problems or help them solve some of their problems. But in 2013, if I step back and I looked at what I was doing, I was, you know, managing people, I was involved in hiring, I was involved in raising money. We were you know, at, a, at a stage of growth where I was actually doing very little thinking and very little on-the-ground work around any of the things that I did at the very beginning. And so I just sort of looked at that and I thought, you know, if you told me at, in 2005 that I would have been involved in putting together you know, anti-corruption policies for donors and HR policies and hiring and doing all the administrative stuff, and worrying about that side of it. I probably wouldn't have started it in the first place. So I just decided it was probably time to go, that maybe there was somebody else who was better at those things than I was, somebody who maybe enjoyed them more than I did. Uh, and so we announced a, a, a transition to a senior management team. I spent about a year uh, over the transition, so it was, it was done very carefully and very, very thoughtfully. Um, But I also realized, I wrote a blog post um, about the Rolling Stones uh, a year or two earlier. The Rolling Stones over their history actually had three different managers, and each manager was actually particularly skilled at taking them through each level. So the first was great at negotiating contracts. Uh, and negotiating record deals, and that was important for the Rolling Stones at the beginning. The second was very good at, at at selling and marketing and pushing, and the third happened to be very good at merchandising and commercialization. The Rolling Stones actually needed those three different types of managers at each of those stages in order to become the success they've been today. And I thought, for me, huh, maybe I'm just the person who was good at the beginning, and maybe there's now a second phase where somebody else might be better, and there might be a third phase later where at whatever point it's at, then they might be better. So that was also an influence. Um, I think I called that the Rolling Stone School of Innovation Management. It was a, a blog post that I was particularly keen, of, keen on, uh, which kind of documented that thinking.
0: So I'm, I'm personally going to check it out. And I guess I want to just uh, take the conversation off uh, off you right now and put it back on myself. I'm a first-time founder um, and I've got a, a small team. Uh, we're, we're trying to do big things uh, for the industry that we work in. Do you believe that um, and again, uh, candid's the best way. Uh, do you believe that a company, when it scales, will always outgrow the founder, um, or do you believe that a founder can take it through from a a one to ten to fifty to
1: a hundred to five hundred person company? Yeah, it's a great question, and I guess uh, the easy answer is that there's there's no no model or no size that fits all. Uh, I I think what does become a danger is when the founder becomes so inextricably linked to the company that really once that person's gone, you can have a severe challenge. I'm thinking of, you know, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, uh these types, uh, Steve Jobs. I mean Apple have managed to transition, which is which is very interesting. But um, you know, they they, they put in place a number of uh, procedures that enable the transition to go on and Steve Jobs was sick for a while, so they knew it was going to happen. But I think I think in some cases, a founder is the right person to stick it through right to the end and to scale it and to grow it. And they're, they're hugely inspiring people. But I do think for most organizations that I've come across, the founder has been particularly skilled at, at, at growing and, and their passion has enabled people to join on attract staff, attract uh, funding, attract investment and all those kinds of things. But there comes a point where I think the founder then sticks around a little bit too long because they, they, they refuse to let go of their baby. Uh, and at that point, they can sometimes drag the thing back down into the ground. Um, but but how, how, does a, how does a founder become that self-aware that they identify that
0: point? Um,
1: um, yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, I, I, I was always sort of trying to step back and take a look at what was going on and being honest with myself about what I was enjoying and what I was good at. And I think it really is as simple as that. In a way, it's thinking: you know, what what are my skills? What are my strengths? Is it if it's in starting up organisations, then I'm probably then maybe less good at, or maybe not so motivated by running them once they've started up. And so at that point, maybe you should leave and go and start something up again. If you're particularly skilled at growing things and you've kind of got through that initial stage, then maybe step back and take a look and think to yourself: you know, what am what am I good at? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What do I enjoy? What do I not enjoy? But I think also just speaking to people, speaking to your users, speaking to your staff, just being, keeping a finger on the pulse of the organization that you've grown. And just to get a sense of, you know, do people actually still enjoy working with me? Do people still feel that I'm adding the value? And I think one of the things that I found, I I I used to hold board meetings during the transition phase and I used to hate those. Um, And I think people knew I hated them. Um, but because there was a transition taking place, it didn't really matter too much. But if, if a founder's well entrenched in their organization and they're doing something particularly badly and they're not asking their staff or they don't have a culture where staff can actually tell them, look, you know, you're know, you clearly not enjoying this now. Maybe you should you know, think about something else. And I think you can get stuck stuck in a rut. But I think it's all about really just stepping back and just being brutally honest with yourself.
0: Yeah, that's, that's the thing that I'm... Uh... Right now, it's not a concern for me, but I think in the next three to five years, it's if we hit the level of success we're trying to achieve, um, I'm, I'm personally aware that I'm not the best manager in the world, but I'm, I'm working on it. It's, will the company outpace my own learnings of how to manage a team? And then just, I guess, like you say, keep a finger on the pulse with the team and understand actually if this, if this thing's moving quicker than I am, uh, yeah. being, being self-aware.
1: And there's, you know, there's other roles people can take on. They can sort of take on a head of thought leadership or some kind of, you know, head of innovation role, or or just be a kind of a spiritual kind of presence in the organization. Um, you know, I I certainly remember during the transition at Frontline SMS, people still wanted only really to talk to me, uh, and that was a challenge getting, you know, getting the media and getting in invites to conferences to start to go to the staff, because you know that, that also becomes, I, I think, can become a point of tension where you have a founder that's built it to a certain point and then you've got all these staff that are taking it to the next level. If all the focus remains on on the founder, then I think sometimes that detracts from the fact that actually, you know, there, there is one person at the top here, but there's also a huge amount of staff or a huge number of staff potentially behind this person who's now, you know, enabled it to scale. I often wonder how Elon Musk's staff feel when he goes to a conference and talks about Tesla, then he goes to another one, and talks about SpaceX and goes another one to talk about, the boring company. You know, he might not be the best person to actually speak to what's going on on in those businesses anymore. But there's an expectation that he'll be the one fronting it. And I think sometimes it can be to the detriment of the people who are kind of taking on the work.
0: Uh, really interesting point. And to be honest, around around culture, growth and that sort of uh, decision-making process and self-awareness, I could probably spend the rest of this podcast talking about it. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I guess to pull it back to you, you mentioned the the Rolling Stones podcast, uh, the Rolling Stones blog post, um, writing. You've got two books out there. Can you just give me an idea to why you went from building this this product, building frontline SMS, to taking the time, energy, and effort to put two books out there so, for people to enjoy? And what was the goal behind those?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, fortunately, I've been through the taking an idea to something which which you know, reached scale and and was considered you know, quite a success in the field that it was it was launched in. So, I, I felt I had a lot to share around how you could build something that, that would ultimately succeed and, and do what you intended it to do. But when I looked at the wider technology for development sector, I, I kept seeing people doing the opposite things. They were you know, building tools 10,000 miles away and then flying them into places and trying to get people to use them. They weren't spending time in the field trying to really understand the problem that they were trying to solve. They weren't really genuinely speaking to the end users of that product, and they were chasing money from donors. So other people were setting the agenda rather than the people in the developing countries who had the problems. And and that really frustrated me. So I, I, I put together a first book called The Rise of the Reluctant Innovator, which was crowdfunded, which featured 10 innovators who had built things in a similar way that I had done. They had gone out into the world they had seen a problem they never expected to see it had really hit them hard they decided at that point they needed to dedicate their lives to trying to solve it they had no experience in building a business they had no experience in how to really build a technology in most cases they just did it because they were driven by the pain that they saw in the eyes of the people who had that had that problem now you go to stanford or you know Harvard or whatever, and you look at these nice, neat innovation pathways, these innovation challenges, these kind of open IDEO type events. It looks nice and clean and easy and straightforward. If you follow this path and you get people on at the right stage, you will end up with an innovation. And what I was seeing out there just wasn't the case. It was messy. It was scrappy. It was unstructured. It was unplanned. Um, People weren't often skilled in the things that we think that they needed to be skilled in. And the books really were, or the first book and then the second book, which was sort of a follow-up to the first, was designed just to say to people, look, sometimes the best way to build something useful is just to jump on a plane and get yourself out there. A, a problem will find you. And when the right problem finds you, you will be driven to fix it. But don't spend years and years learning business models and pitching and innovation pathways until you have found that thing. So it was a frustration, I think, that lots of people were wasting their time and being sold a promise that really didn't materialize.
0: I love that. And I, and I guess um, for me, is you opened up this interview with um, a statement, which I wrote down, which I absolutely loved, which was, we can't forget that that people use the things that we build, uh, and I guess from the, from the statement you just made is go and meet the people and find the problem, uh, and don't forget it's it's people that we're solving this problem for, uh, and it's and people are hard. One thing that I've established and spoke about on this podcast and a couple of others is business is really easy; it's the people part of it that makes it really hard. Um, so what I just heard from you is go and spend time with the people you're solving the problem for, uh, and there's no clear cut solution to do it just get out there into the field, find the problem, and then try and solve it. It felt like that's what you sort of did with Frontline SMS until something clicked.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think also the reason that Frontline SMS worked for me and why things have worked since is I spent a lot of time living in some quite sort of tough places in order to understand life and the context of the people I, I ultimately ended up helping. And when Frontline SMS was released and people started to pay attention, I think most of my users looked at what I'd done and they said, you know, fair play you've actually bothered to come out and to figure out what life is like in our context. And because of that, I think the solution works. But I, I think I also had the respect of my users because I had done that. And I think that's important. 100%. Uh,
0: yeah, it goes a long way in terms of, I guess, just to take it back and it's, it's in no way relatable, but I'm going to try is when we first built our product, we didn't build anything. I spent six months because my, my background's in telesales, I spent right. six months making phone calls to my potential customers saying, This is what I'm thinking about. Will it work? Can I come and see you? And I just spent six months speaking to the people that I was trying to solve the problem for. Yeah, guess, no, absolutely. You know, Submerge yourself in the field, those people who who spend the time to help you build the solution are going to be your early adopters uh, and then help you shape the rest of the business. And that's still true with us today. Those core three, four hundred people that came on board still give us feedback we still listen. And to be honest, nothing that we've built in our businesses, we're smart guys, but we don't come up with any of the ideas. We just listen to the consumer and then go away and build it like a real partnership. Um, the next thing that I've written down that I wanted to sort of uh, touch on is, is where you, where you work now. Um, so could you just give me an idea of why you've decided to return back to, as you, as you put it, uh, the dark side, the private sector. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, what do you do now? And most importantly for me is why did you decide that this was where you'd spend the next chapter of your career? Because you've, you've done some really cool stuff um, across lots of different fields and sectors. Uh, and I get the impression, just after speaking to you for an hour, is uh, you're very diligent in your thinking in terms of where you spend your time, why are you doing it at where you're doing it now, uh, and why the private sector?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I guess ultimately, um, last, early last year, I, I, I was just getting increasingly frustrated with the dysfunction in much of the technology for development sector, you know, money going on things that clearly weren't going to work and people chasing the next big shiny thing. And, you know, despite my blogging and my writing and my books and my efforts to try to influence some of that, and I, I guess I have in some way, but more broadly, I think I've, I've failed on that. So I, I just decided it was time to step back again right? I was, I was just brutally honest. I thought, you know, I'm not enjoying this anymore. I'm, I'm going to bed angry. And uh, it's not healthy to go to bed angry. So um, I was very fortunate to um, have been involved in a company called Yoti. It's a, a, a London-based startup um we have a digital identity platform a smartphone app that allows you to create your own digital identity that allows you to prove who you are in person and online when you're transacting in in whatever way you know trying to buy an age restricted good for example it will help you prove that you're old enough to buy that buy that good uh, and and you know yoti have it has social impact baked in by keeping people safe online there's a there's a nice social impact benefit to just be allowing people to do that. But there was a strong interest and a strong drive within the company to think about how it might use its technologies in the humanitarian sector. Um, and so I just felt that focusing on one particular problem, um, digital identity and the one, 1.1 billion people on the planet who can't prove who they are and it can adversely affect their access to government services and so on, by focusing exclusively on one problem with one company, Um, It would actually be a lot easier to focus and also because it's a commercial outfit I think the model is just more just clearer to me It's that if you don't build something that people want then you disappear and you go away It's not the false economy of the nonprofit sector where if you're really good at selling stories You can somehow perpetuate the building of bad products. And so I, I liked that clarity uh, and in the year I've been at the OT, we've launched a new social impact strategy, which not surprisingly is very grassroots focused. We're looking to help grassroots organizations better understand digital identity. We're running a fellowship program right now where we're looking to give money to people in developing countries to investigate or to solve identity problems where they are. We're building a toolkit for them and we'll run innovation challenges. So I'm actually just as excited about this um, as I have been about anything in my career, but it happens to be within a sector which I think over the years I've just sort of heard bad things about, you know, the private sector is a little bit evil and is always chasing money. I think Yoti approving in at least the case of digital identity, that isn't the case.
0: So this is really tough for me, Cam, because I'm looking at the time and thinking I need to be aware of your time. I could probably spend another half an hour digging into everything around Yoti, but for anyone that's interested
1: in just Yoti right now, where do they go and learn more? So this place would be um, www.yoti.com www.yoti, slash impact is the side I run, but the main website has all of the various business solutions that we also offer. Brilliant stuff. Ken, this is the, this point of the interview for me where we get to fire some rapid fire
0: questions over to you. I do my best not to follow up uh, because it can add an extra 30 minutes onto our time together. <laughs> uh, are, are you ready to go through the rapid fire stuff?
1: I'll do my best.
0: Brilliant. So the first one is, what is the one thing you know now that you would tell the 18-year-old version of yourself?
1: Um, don't get too
0: impatient. I like it. I, I need that every day, to be honest. <laughs> um, next one is, what is the number one tool, service, or hack that you use to get work done that our listeners may not know about? Oh, my
1: goodness. Um...
0: I've got your, I've got your answer, but I don't answer it for you. I'm going to answer it for you. Uh, okay. you, you have, <laughs> uh, you have children, you've built a shed outside of the house
1: oh, okay. yeah, that one.
0: <laughs> to get work done. And I, to be honest, I'm looking at it thinking, I need my own shed. I desperately need, I've got a three and a five year old. Your, is there anything else that you've got that, uh, now I've bought you some time.
1: Um, no, I, th- I think the, I think the shed's a good one. Um, yeah, no, I'd go with that. Yeah, find find a space where you can, you know, do a bit of feng shui and make sure that you're sitting in the right space and facing the right direction and somewhere where you can think.
0: Like it. What is the best piece of advice you've been given and who gave it to you?
1: Uh best piece of advice given um would be probably um just do what you enjoy doing. Um my mum said that to me. It's a very simple one, but and it's driven, I guess, most of my Decisions and my pivotal points.
0: I think seventy-five percent of the answer to that has either been mum or dad related. I like it. <laughs> what was the last thing that you looked at and thought I could make a business out of fixing that problem?
1: Uh, funnily enough, it was helping people switch their shopping and purchasing habits. Um, but I think I might have just been beaten to that. But I had the idea about three years ago. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, I've got lots of ideas I've never executed, and someone else ends up doing them. I think it, uh,
0: from the impression that I get from speaking to you, you need to be uh, extremely highly motivated to, to get into something. But when you do, you sort of commit, um, which is uh, just, I guess one thing I've taken away from this so far is the stuff that you've, the stuff that you've worked on and touched, you've really gone deep on. So I'm looking forward to actually learning about Yoti and, and what it does um, just because you've, You've impressed me so far in terms of your level of desire to make impact. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more. It's
1: worth, about doing, it's worth doing 100%. That's, that's what I've
0: always said. Yeah. So uh, my last uh, 15 seconds of waffle was that. That's what I think is really impressive. If you do something, you do it 100%, which is a great statement. If you recommend one book or podcast, what is it? Uh, other than your
1: podcast, of course, um, I would say, <laughs> well, well played. <laughs> uh, Small is Beautiful, E.F. Schumacher, 1973, the birth of the appropriate technology movement.
0: Uh, I'm delaying because I'm making a note because
1: that's a new one on me. Very old book, but it's still incredibly relevant today about how to build things that work for people. I'm going to I'm gonna give it a read. I'm going to find it, give it a read,
0: and then I'm going to drop you a line to later let know. Let me
1: know what you think, indeed.
0: Who has had the largest
1: impact on your life? Um, I would say, uh, well, in in terms spiritually, my mother, but in terms of my career, it was was two people who gave me my first mobile phone contract in January 2003, who launched a career. Um, So business, those two people, Simon Hicks and Karen Hayes, and spiritually, my mother. Good answers. Last one from me, Ken
0: is what is the number one piece of advice that you would give to first time founders?
1: Uh, Don't hesitate.
0: You've been possibly the most succinct guest we've had as we go through those answers. (laughs) And I, and I super appreciate it. Ken, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and and our time on the podcast together. If someone wants to learn more about you personally, uh, not just Yoti, where can they go to read some of the, some of your uh, blog posts online?
1: Yeah, all, all of my history and work are all at www.kuanja.net. That's K-I-W-A-N-J-A.net. So I'm going to keep that site for my children to read when I'm long gone to, to see what a crazy career their father had. Absolutely, we can. Again, thank you so much for your time. And
0: I wish you all the luck in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, guys. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Don't forget, head over to Startup Stories and hit subscribe because that's where you can find all of season one and be ready for when we drop season two. Speak to you soon.